Right. Uh, good evening. Uh, a very warm welcome to all of you. Uh, delighted to see so many of you here this evening, and uh, I'm sure people will continue to file in as the evening uh, goes on. We just hope they don't file out. Where is Archbishop Carey? See, there he is in the back. Okay. Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then I'll introduce our speaker this evening and get underway. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling the Carries uh, to this place. We pray uh, that tonight your word might go forth and accomplish that for which you have purposed it. And Lord, we pray that it would not return void. Lord, we pray that uh, by um, his ministry uh, this evening that we might indeed see Jesus. We pray for he and Eileen. We pray that you would bless them and keep them as they journey around the United States. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, George Carey is the 103rd Archbishop of Canterbury. Before that, he was the Bishop of Bath and Wells, and before that, he was the principal at Trinity College Bristol, which is a theological college in England, and Gill actually has a degree from there. And prior to that, he was the vicar of St. Nicholas Church in Durham, and also served on the faculty of Oak Hill and St. John's Nottingham with Michael Green uh, and where Paul Zoll did his theological education. He is married, he taught him even worse. Uh, and uh, he is married to Eileen, Lady Carey, where are you? There she is. And uh, after retiring as the 103rd Archbishop of Canterbury, he was elevated to the peerage. It's such a funny word to be elevated. Did it feel like you were being elevated or? That's just a funny word. Humiliated. Humiliated uh, to the peerage and uh, currently is a very active member of the House of Lords uh, there in Westminster. Archbishop Carey, God bless you. We're delighted that you're here. Thank you, Thank you, Mr. Dean. Uh, if I may, though, make it a little more human. Um, dear Andrew, thank you. It's terrific to be back in Birmingham. Birmingham, I should say, that's the right way to say it, with um, Eileen, my wife, and um, to, tonight and tomorrow, the two lectures really form a part. Tonight is going to be a little more, say, biblical and intellectual, theological. Tomorrow we'll be a little more practical. Can you hear me all right, by the way? You're, okay, fine, smashing. So we'll um, get to work. Um, so thank you to the Dean. Thank you to the staff. Thank you to Gil, who's been absolutely terrific. Where are you, Gil? Over there. He's been really so helpful making our visit to, uh, to Birmingham so uh, special. I've called uh, my address this evening Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. The Christian understanding of humanity in the context of mission. Um, so here we are talking about that. In Psalm 8, the psalmist says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And it's one of the most fundamental questions that anyone could consider. It's fundamental because the answer to that question determines the way we view ourselves this world and our ultimate destiny. So I'm delighted to be with you to go deeper into what is it to be a human being made in the image and likeness of God? How does it relate to mission and ministry today? And I want to do it from two angles. First of all, I want to do it from an academic point of view uh, because that's the way I've been trained and I wrote a book about this. 
uh, which was called I Believe in Man. You could never write a book like that these days. You've got to say women as well, obviously. But in those innocent days of the 1970s, you can get away with anything then. And um, the other angle is from a pastoral point of view, and that's going to be tomorrow evening. Now, the odd thing that confronts us from the very beginning is there's no such thing as a definitive doctrine of the human person. Man doesn't feature in any of our creeds, there's, and there's no reason why he or she should. Theology, after all, is about God. Theology is not about man or women. And so, and so we might pause there and say, OK, if theology is only about God, does that mean that men and women are irrelevant? No, of course not. Let's take the illustration of a young girl who's going out on her first date. Or if that is too gender particular, then it could easily be a young man going out on his first date. And both of them would put on their best finery, the best dress, the best suit or whatever. Uh, but that doesn't mean to say that the other person is absent from their thinking because in putting on their finery they want to please the other person so you can't talk about one without the other in the same way you can't talk about God without talking about who are we talking about man has to fit in it in some way the theologian um, Richard Norris once said this the scriptural way of talking about human beings is systematically theological in the sense that human beings are identified and understood through their relationship to God or in Luther's phrase quorum Deo before God so I'm confident that each one of us uh, is agreed on this that no age know so much about the human person as our age does and yet no age knows so little or less about ultimately what human life is about because having lost our awareness of God most people today are really concerned only about the horizontal how do we get through the next day what holidays are we going to plan for next year and so God and the idea of destiny is absent from the lives of so many people today, which is a very sad thing. Now, the question of human nature, though, has been a consistent concern in Western thought. Most Christians, most people in our society would tend to think in terms that human nature consists of a material body, such as my body, aging and all that and the internal immaterial immortal soul which survives the death of the body and so beginning from the enlightenment which as you know was the french and german um, philosophical movement in the 17th and 18th century a tendency began then to define human beings in terms of a machine uh, entrapped in a deterministic universe, behaviour determined by impersonal factors such as genetic factors, uh, education, your upbringing and all this kind of thing. 
Um, and so the materialistic view that began to be formed was that people do not have an immaterial soul at all. We only have a mortal material body which is destined to die. That is the depressing materialistic view that reduces human beings to the status of a machine or the status of any animal that uh, walks this planet. And this negates the biblical idea of man created in the image and likeness of God. So instead of being like God, human beings are reduced to being like an animal, and no better. We might be a little superior animal, but no greatly better. Of course, not everyone accepts that materialistic view. In fact, I would say the majority of people on the globe do not accept it. Most people, we have to say, would say that there is a divine spark within each one of us. But it's it, it being shaped by a new humanistic idea because we have this divine power where we can almost sort of um, uh, we have abilities within us that can be unleashed and this kind of humanistic gospel is popular today because it challenges people to find salvation within ourselves tapping and releasing the abilities we have today. So people today are confronted with a, a, a choice. On the one hand, materialism, uh, that we are ultimately nothing. Or the other one, that we are divine-like with unlimited potential. And the Christian response to this is to challenge both ideas. That the Holy Scriptures provide a base for our understanding of ourselves. And the study I want to offer you this, this evening shows us that scripture doesn't actually treat us as pre-programmed machines, neither are we divine beings with unlimited potential. On the other hand, we are creatures created in the image and likeness of God, dependent on him for our existence in this age and in the world to come. Now, it may come as a shock to some of you here that the Bible never speaks of the human person as body and soul, even though some verses may suggest it. In fact, a number do in the Bible. Let me take you to Genesis 2.7. The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, breathed into him, into his nostrils, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. We know that very well. We've had it read to us and we've read it in our Bibles. And historically that verse has been understood through the lens of what we call classical dualism. It's been assumed that the breath that God has given to us is a, an immortal, um, immaterial substance, a soul, that God has implanted in us, that that is ultimately us. And just as earthly life began uh, with the implementation of the immortal soul, so it ends when we die and the soul is released. That is classical dualism. And Genesis 2-7 has been understood on that kind of basis. But it's a mistake. It's quite a wrong interpretation. 
because the Hebrew word there for soul, nefesh, is the word soul, has been understood almost according to the Webster definition of the immaterial essence, the animating principle or actuating cause of an individual life. And so we, when we look at the Bible and read it today, we are reading it almost in a dualistic way, um, a platonic way. This is how one writer puts the reality of it. Dom Wustenmork, Dom indicates is a Catholic um, um, writer and probably an abbot. He says this, man as nefesh, as soul, means that it is his nefesh that goes to dinner, that tackles a steak and eats it. When I see another person, what I see is not merely his body, but his visible nefesh, soul. Because in terms of Genesis 2-7, that is what man is. We're a living nefesh. So when you go and eat later, your nefesh is enjoying that meal. Um, and in other words, that we are a nefesh, soul. So let me come on to that in a moment. So it's a common view among biblical scholars these days that the Old Testament doesn't differentiate between physical and spiritual organs because the entire range of feelings, thinking, knowing, loving, praying, and all these kind of things is attributed uh, not only to the spiritual organs of the soul and spirit, but to the physical organs of the body as well, that to the kidneys, um, to the heart, and so on. So the soul, nefesh, and the spirit, ruach, are used in the Old Testament to denote not immaterial entities or anything, but the whole spectrum of what it is to be a human being. And so it is important to recall that the Old Testament the writers were not familiar with the physiological and psychological uh, modern ideas that you and I have been taught and take for granted. They didn't know, for example, that the sensation that we have when we touch a hot uh, maybe instrument or something like that is caused by nerves that actually transmit the information to the brain because the word brain doesn't occur in the Old Testament. And the writers didn't know anything about uh, the nervous system. So for the most part, they understood human nature in terms of fundamental elements. Um, so we find in the Old Testament words like soul, body, heart, and spirit. In fact, actually, the biblical idea is that they always regarded as the heart, as the center of everything. And you'll read that again and again in Scripture. And the fact that a person consists of various parts which are integrated, interrelated, functionally united, leaves no room for an understanding of a soul as distinct from the body. So, as time is not my friend this evening, let me make four assertions that form the substance of a Christian doctrine of human nature. The first is this, we, we are spiritual. Sorry, I'll refrain that, reverse that and rephrase it. We are special. We are special. We are special because our life derives from God and continues because of God's mercy. 
And this dependence upon the Most High is basic to the Old Testament idea of human nature. God is creator. Human beings are creatures formed in his likeness. Now here we clash with modern assumptions about human origin. We are informed these days that there is nothing special about human beings. Uh, the phrase I want to use is nothing but. We are nothing but animals formed by evolution and we owe our nature to chance and fate formed over many, many millennia. Now let me make it clear, and I hope I'm not too controversial here, that I accept evolution and believe that Charles Darwin, although a shaky Christian at the end of his life, was never an enemy of Christian thought. Although without doubt, Darwin was and is an enemy of, of fundamentalism. But be aware of the danger of nothing buttery, nothing but a mere animal, nothing but a creature, nothing but a mortal, fallible thing. How foolish such reductionism is. I wonder if Shakespeare had been reading Psalm 8 when he wrote in Hamlet, what a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable in action, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god. The great Shakespeare was so aware of the mystery of the human being, our glory and our shame. And so the ambiguities and contradictions of our nature are bewildering and strange. We are a species capable of the greatest works of art in music and, and elsewhere, of tenderness and care and love, and yet capable of the most gruesome violence, murder and ghastly events like Auschwitz and the Rwanda genocide. Blaise Pascal, the French writer, and a rather overlooked thinker these days, wrote, what a chimera is man, what a novelty, what chaos. And I think we'd all agree with the last one. But hold on, can we, can we prove this specialness? Well, let that question remain in your mind. My second assertion is that we're made in the image and likeness of God. When that phrase occurs in Genesis, that's, a, that's called a Hebrew parallelism. It means the same thing. Likeness and image is the same. Let us make God, man, in our own image after our likeness. And that distinctive description is unique to the Jewish and Christian scriptures. And now elaborate attempts have been made to define what, what is meant by this idea of image. Um, some contend it was actually a physical idea that we are made like God. So God is embodied. And, but most people say that that's wrong because the Bible doesn't say that. God doesn't have a corporeal nature. And that is discounted, of course, in John 4, that God is spirit, which suggests he's not bound by time or space as we are. 
Um, the other idea that the image is um, the non-material aspect of human nature is spiritual soul. So one writer, Laird Harris, says, Man alone in the world is a spiritual, moral and rational being. He's a God-given soul. And the inference is that this soul, being made in the image of likeness of God, is not subject to the limits of time and space. And Calvin would ta have taken that view. But you will have immediately uh, guessed from that, once again you're back into dualism. A bit, uh, that, that is not um, what the Bible says. Man did not receive a soul from God. He was made a living soul. And actually, in the creation account, the animals also, are, we are told, were made living souls, and yet they were not created in the image and likeness of God. Now, some other writers, such as Karl Barth, and I agree with Karl Barth, uh, he's not my favourite theologian, but on, on this matter, I do agree. He says that the essence of the image is that we are made man and 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 women, men and women, are made in the limited image of God. And the reason for that, if you look at the text in Genesis 1.27, that male and female he created them. And that's added on to in the image of God he created it. And that's a wonderful thing for those who actually think there's a separation uh, of man and, and, and woman has to look at that text. You won't find it there. There's a unity, an identity. Um, so the idea of human beings being made in the image and likeness of God points beyond the nothing buttery of materialism to the grandeur of God. And this leads to my third point. To human beings is given the capacity to know God and to reach beyond ourselves to dream, to wonder, to know and to feel. Let me take you back to Genesis 1 again. Because you will know from your reading of it, it, it it's quite an extraordinary passage. I, I do interpret it as a parable, by the way. I think Genesis 1 to 11 is parabolic. When you get to Genesis 2, to the Abraham account, you can see you're on almost on historical ground at that particular point. So in these chapters, you have a fivefold unpeeling of creation starts with God creating space then you have the unpeeling uh, very similar to what evolution has told us and at the end of each stage God stops to contemplate what he has done and we have the description that it's good in verse 4 10 12 18 21 and then God sets out to create a being that could have lordship over his creation. A being with whom he can walk and talk. And the, the, the adverb then occurs at the beginning of verse 26. Suggests that the creation of human beings is something very special. In all the previous accounts of God are presented as a continuous series linked together by the prep conjunction and. But when the cosmic order is finished, God, the Lord, utters his intention. Then God said, let us make man in our own image. Isn't it interesting? You get the plural coming 
in there, maybe anticipating the Trinity later on. And after creating human beings, God says about his whole creation, it's very good, very good. You can see the emphasis there. And so the what I'm trying to draw up from that, what I think it is coming across is that human life is not a result of fortuitous natural forces or chance mutation in the animal world, but the personal activity of God in creating us. It's almost as if human beings are the specific focus of God's creation. And the impression given by the narrative is that when God has come to create human beings, he enters into a relationship which is quite different and wholly distinctive. Here we have an understanding of humankind's capacity to be and to do on a, a finite level what God is doing on an infinite level. And the creation account seems to be suggesting that while the sun rules the day, the moon the night, the fishes the sea, mankind, humankind, images God by having dominion over all these realms and to take part in God's stewardship of creation. Now here I must offer a reflection that emerged from a cruise that my wife and I made a couple of weeks ago. We enjoyed, I was a speaker on board, so it wasn't totally holiday, but <laughs> it, it was a good holiday though. And I was one of four speakers um, on, and we were exploring the game parks of South Africa around the east coast of South Africa, and it's absolutely wonderful. And the weather was really good as well. Uh, one of the uh, other lecturers was a, an anthropologist, a very outstanding man, Professor David Price Williams, a Christian man. And David gave five lectures on the cavemen of um, South Africa from the Kalahari Desert. And he was lecturing on the rock art of these very old um, bushmen in the Kalahari Desert. Extraordinary works of primitive art. And uh, Professor Price Williams suggested that in these paintings we find expressed the early signs of the yearnings of people wanting to know God. And he was asked a question if this indicated that spirituality is hardwired into the human condition. And um, Price Williams refused to be drawn on that. He said, as a scientist, I don't have the evidence to say that much. What I'm prepared to say is that such drawings suggest there was in the early origins of humankind a desire to reach beyond ourselves that is not there in the rest of uh, living beings. My fourth, point, my fourth point takes us into a darker image that in the biblical account of creation, the special position of human beings does not detract from the fact of sin and evil. Now, you heard me say just a moment ago that I accept the fact of man's evolution. That means I don't accept Genesis as an actual and literal account of creation. Uh, from the time I became a Christian in my late teens, um, I interpreted Genesis 1 to 3 as a parable. Um, and indeed, I would argue, actually, 
that that is what the writer intended. Now, if somebody were inclined to take the, the creation story as a literal description of Eden, then you've got to be challenged, or prepared to be challenged, where was that utopia situated? Uh, was there really a tree of knowledge and evil? Did the creator of this vast universe really walk with man and, and a woman in a, an actual garden? And those who hold that view must be prepared and must believe that men have one rib less than women. And as far as I know, I have the same number of ribs as my wife. So there's not really an actual fall along the lines interpreted by, by some Christians according to the way they read Genesis. But really that should not trouble us. We might consider the going back to Shakespeare again, Macbeth. He didn't actually have in mind an actual Denmark with a real prince of Denmark. He was not actually creating a his actual historical place or even drawing upon real people. To the question, however, was Shakespeare writing about the truth of the human condition, our frailty, weakness, greed, fear, anger, violence? And the answer is yes, of course, without any doubt. And so it is with respect to Genesis. that There are two accounts of creation in Genesis, one and two. They're clearly describing our condition, which is timeless, tragic, in need of salvation. Um, and we must note this, that the physical body is not seen in Genesis as a cause of sin. One popular but old form of interpretation interpreted the original sin as consisting of the illicit act of sexual intercourse. And such an interpretation is totally devoid of biblical support. The temptation to which Adam and Eve yielded was not the temptation to have sex, but to act as if they were God. Sex is God's good creation in the same way as any other physiological function of the human body. And so the biblical account of creation and fall locates the origin of sin, not in the body, but in the mind, namely in the desire to act and to think of oneself as God. Sin is volitional, an act of the will, and not a biological condition of the body. And so the Bible actually has a very healthy view of the body as an object of God's redemption uh, and creation. Now, does this hold true with the New Testament? Uh, and I want to go on to that now, now. What new light does the New Testament throw on our origins? And it does throw a lot of light and in two major ways. The first is that it reveals a saviour. In comes a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue. The, and the second thing that the New Testament brings in is a telos, T-E-L-O-S, an objective, it's going somewhere. Now, we find the same thing in the New Testament, a collection of words that um, seem to suggest that dualism or something similar, words like spirit, soul, flesh, heart, echo what we have found in the Old Testament. 
For example, in the Gospels, Jesus says this, What does it profit a man for you to gain the whole world and forfeit to lose your suke, your soul? What would you give to get it back again? And that seemed to suggest there are two things, you and your soul. But if you actually think of it as some interpretation now the Bible, some translation, it's called life, you know perfectly well you can lose your life. You talked about the same same thing. Who is this you? It's yourself. Or let's go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 25, where Jesus challenges his hearers not to worry about their suke or, or life, what they shall eat or drink, or about their body, their soma, what they share well. And the distinctions seem to be, well, we have two parts of our body, but he's speaking about the same thing. Your body is the outward thing. The suke is you from an inward point of view. And so those who argue for a body-soul distinction or a body-soul or spirit um, will obviously... Um, get this rather confused and they tend to then um, appeal to 1 Thessalonians 5.23 where Paul offers the blessing, may your spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have a tripartite idea then. But the terms, and it's only, it only occurs there, is more likely to emerge from a Hebrew parallel, parallelism than distinct dimensions. But let me stay with St. Paul now. Paul uses a rich um, terminology for human beings, but he nowhere actually um, provides a neat summary of where he's going, and that's typically Pauline, as you know, in so many ways. But I do want to linger with St. Paul because it's in his teaching we find the richest explanation of what it is to be a human being. And I, I do want you to pause a moment and, and to admire and marvel at Paul's rich theology and amazing erudition. It's extraordinary isn't it, when you stop to think for a moment that within a short period of the death and resurrection of Jesus, this former travelling rabbi has given the infant church the most wonderful vision of creation in which human beings are given such a privileged uh, place. And we can only understand that if we see that Paul's theology is shaped not so much by the past, but by the future, by the telos. And it's the goal of creation that excites him. And it's in this telos that he works out his expectation of a redeemed and revitalized humanity. And we find that particularly in his later writings, Ephesians and Corinthians. But if we start in 2 Corinthians 5, this is what I want to build out now. 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If any woman is in Christ, she is a new creation. And Galatians 6.15 says the same. For neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. 
And it's in the context of the newness of life ushered in by the second Adam to the fight that Paul builds a wonderful theology of humanity set in the mission of God to save the world. And the letter to the Ephesians, I think, sets that out in some detail. In Ephesians, it's, it's, this for me is the heart of Pauline's thinking. In Ephesians 1, it sets out, it's a, a letter to, um, written to Asia Minor, many of the churches there. In, um, in 1, he's setting the scope of where we stand in uh, the Gospel. And in, in chapter 2, it's the coming together of Jew and Gentile that focuses his attention. The coming of one single new temple where we will worship together a, u a united humanity. And then in Ephesians 3, he has that wonderful prayer that I pre preached about yesterday in Beeson uh, Divinity School, in which the, the wonder of God, that in, in chapter 4, you have the gifts of the Spirit, um, but is moving the argument towards unity um, and maturity. And then in chapter 5, you have the unity then expressed in terms of men and women living together in monogamous marriage. Now, if we go back to chapter 4, from verse 12 onward, you've got the linking of the gifts the Spirit has given to us to where the telos is heading. And he said, the purpose of the gifts given to each one of us is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until, note this, until we all attain to the unity of faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature, let me turn my page over, to mature manhood or humanity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What an extraordinary and rich outline of a transformed humanity fashioned by a new life in Christ. And then follows on from that, two ways of living. If that is what we are, then there are two ways of living. The first way, he said, the way of the Gentiles, the old nature, palaios anthropos. And there is the new way of living, which he calls the new nature, kainos anthropos. And in verses 20 to 24, we have the idea of um, the human person put back together and this time reflecting God in the world. The new humanity is talking about. We are told to put off the old nature. And uh, as we're approaching the season of Lent, it's a good opportunity to reflect on that. To be renewed in the spirit of your mind. To put on the new human which is created according to God in justice and holiness of life. And there he seemed to be suggesting that truth is contrasted with the deceit of the old nature. Justice is the new human being who acts now as God intended, as steward on the earth. Spirit of mind, we note, they're not in any way uh, separate elements, but each combined, each expression, each pictures, verse 24, 
where the new humanity is renewed in knowledge according to the image, you're back to image again, to the image of the one who created it. And this is the sharp edge of Paul's theology in the present kingdom of the Messiah. And then the same point, though, is found in other passages of Paul's writings, maybe most strikingly in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brothers and sisters, through the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern God's will, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And the word perfect is telos again, or teleos, because it's not the nominative. So in this rough outline, I offer you a view of a Christian anthropology, which is exciting, um, and which actually gives us a vision of what we are intended to be. We are, yes, we are created along with all other creatures in this teeming world, made of flesh, destined to die, yes, Lent will remind us of that, but created a special creature, made in God's image, made to love him and to serve him, and yet the contradictions emerge in our feebleness, our weakness, our sinfulness, and then Paul steps in and sets forth a new vision of the magnificence of Christ, the telos of creation, giving hope and grandeur to mankind's quest for meaning and hope. This, my brothers and sisters, is the theology behind Christian mission. Here is the raison d'etre for the existence of the church and our discipleship in the world. If we are fearfully and wonderfully made, what does that suggest? What are the implications for us as stewards of creation and people given a special mission? And we shall turn to the implications of that tomorrow. Thank you very much indeed. Now, I'm sure you're going to argue with some of that. So, uh, um, I'm very happy to be argued with. So, uh, over to you, Andrew. Are you happy for yes, carrying on like that? Yes, absolutely. They are our yeah. microphone man. Super. Right? Well, I'll, because I have the microphone. Uh, could you clarify the uh, evolution um, idea that you had? I, I guess I would... Somewhat agree that evolution is part of God's plan, but that would be in, I guess, the first six days until he interrupted yeah, evolution yeah, yeah, yeah. and created yeah, yeah. Homo sapiens. Yeah. There might have been all the other hominids yeah. prior to that yeah, absolutely. time, but yeah, yeah. he interrupted time. Yeah. yeah, as long as we don't interpret it in, in literally as days, if we see these as eons, then that, that's fine. It, it's still used, used as a picture, as a, a descriptive for what God was doing. Yeah, I can see it. In fact, I would agree with that. Follow that up, would, would John 1 be a parable? John 1? 1, 1 no, no, no. Four. No, no. It can't be a parable. Um, I mean, it's, an, it's a theological interpretation 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Theological statements, which I would say, Amen to, of course. Archbishop, I wonder if you would uh, say a word about uh, the place of the cross in the um, the sort of missional conclusions uh, and, 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 and how Jesus' um, uh, gift of his life fits in with the schema you've, you've sort of carefully outlined for us. Yes, because of time, I wanted to keep this to about 40, 45 minutes because I know holding on to ideas uh, went in a warm room uh, <laughs> and you paid me the great compliment that I didn't see many eyes closed so thank you for that ladies and gentlemen um, I did mention that what Paul, what the New Testament brings in is the saviour okay but I shot over that to get to Paul's teaching and tomorrow night we'll be picking up on, on that again but quite clearly the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very heart of the Christian faith. It's the um, amazing, unique feature of Christianity which differs from any other. If you want to know what's the difference between Islam, Judaism, any other religion, it's Jesus. He separates us. and But that's the very heart of the New Testament. His death creates... Jesus as the new Adam would do to the fight, rescue comes, and of course then Paul builds on all that and the other writers do. Yes, yeah, sir. Uh, there was an ordinary, uh, very ordinary member of the Church of England by his own description who was also a scholar named C.S. Lewis, and he taught that uh, a mere Christianity, he thought that there were uh, doctrines or ideas that were common to all Christian groups regardless and do you think that the anthropology that you've talked about uh, that the Orthodox the Catholic the Protestants would essentially agree with what you're saying yes I would say um, they, they would they would agree I mean there would be some people who might uh, disagree with my view of evolution but not many, not many these days. Um, there will be different nuances. I mean, the Catholic might approach it in quite a different way in terms of justification by faith, um, and especially on the divine spark. Um, you see, if you take a Lutheran point of view on what we lost at the fall, um, Luther is very dark on this, uh, the, the, the Catholic would, would say, well, it's not as bad as that because our ability to know God must come from somewhere. If we were totally fallen, we wouldn't be able to recognize. We, we wouldn't know the call of God. And I think I would take a view, probably as Anglicans tend to do, <laughs> it's somewhere in the middle there. But basically we are agreed. How does uh, the view that you've outlined differ with uh, Islam's idea of creation, especially human beings, 
and what are some of the implications of those differences as played out in uh, Western society, most notably the UK? That's a good question, really, because I've spoken to Muslims about this. They don't really, as you know, um, of course, if we were a Muslim in this room, he would now disagree with what I'm about to say. Um, but the Muslim scriptures, which is the Quran, really is a, a kind of garbled thing using midrashes and um, part of the Christian scriptures and Jewish scriptures together. So you find an overlap, but a great deal of difference in interpretation. It says very little, very little about the origins of sin and fall. I, I, in fact, I don't think it says anything at all. But there is an awareness of, of sin, and, uh, and for the, the Muslim, the, the, the way back to God is through worship, and, and of course, obedience. Islam is about... Don't be fooled by the idea that Islam is um, a religion of love, and uh, the word Islam means submission. Submission, total submission to God. And that's what the, the IS are doing that to an extreme, want people to submit to a very radical interpretation. But going back to what I was saying, um, there isn't a great deal of overlap on this because the, the idea of the sin, basic sinfulness of human beings is absent in the Quranic scriptures. Uh, you had mentioned in, uh, that the tree of good and evil was in a parable. What about the tree of life? It's going to be in the new Jerusalem, in the center of the new Jerusalem, in the Revelation. Um, yeah, yeah, that's fine, because the, the, the tree of there, similarly in, in Revelation, is a picture. It's an idea. It's where we're heading. Um, is it a real tree? Well, it's an image. It's an image of, of God's calling to, but using the image taken from Genesis. So, yeah, that's right. Do you see it differently? Well, um, we eat of that tree in, in New Jerusalem. I, I, I guess, you know, clearly I won't know for a while, but uh, <laughs> uh, I just take it to be uh, the, tree of, the actually, recreation of uh, the way it was intended before the fall. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a picture, you see. If you, if you, it's, a, it's such a well-known picture. If you go to St. Clemente in Rome, you'll see that. Um, the Tree of Life image is a fantastic one, and it goes all the way through the writings of the Fathers up to the present day. Um, so I'm not sure where you're coming from. In no way would I want to say it's not real. I think it is real. It's a wonderful image. Um, and I don't think the revelation of J John is actually saying anything more than that. I don't think it's um, suggesting that there is a real tree. The whole thing, the apocalypse, is of pictures and, and so on, isn't it? So I'm not knocking what you're saying, but just for me, yeah, the invitation is, is the picture. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Um, going back to evolution, how would you answer the atheist who says he believes in evolution that 
things just sprung up out of nothing, same as if you threw a wristwatch in the sand and it was a multitude of pieces and it just automatically formed a brand new wristwatch. But there are those who seriously believe in all parts of evolution. So yeah. could you clarify that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to say what a miracle that was. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and of course, that, that was at the Paley's argument long ago, wasn't it? Um, the idea um, that there's something about the, the, the world in which we live, it's so united, it's so uh, amazing that it must have been designed by a creator. I think that's a fantastic argument. Because when you, when you actually, if you go back and say it's created out of nothing, then you're positing just um, a lot of accidents happening uh, all over the place. It's not the old story about uh, if you um, had a thousand apes or uh, monkeys typing away merrily, one day they'll be able to compose the whole of Shakespeare's plays. Indeed, they say you have to wait a long time, possibly, before that happens. Um, but you, you have to say that, as I think you were hinting at, the whole idea of um, creation, the stages, and the appearance of human beings, isn't it very strange indeed that we are the only creature which has the ability with our hands to make things, to do digital theology, to send rockets up there. Now, if there's not a note of amazement about this, then we've lost something, because the concept of wonder is very close to worship itself. And I'd want to argue, actually, that um, um, the atheist argument is quite a weak one, really. It depends upon so many ifs and buts. If you bring God into the picture, a personal God, um, in whose image we're made, then that's closer to my mind to understand the reality and wonder of things than the idea that, in fact, actually, it's just an extraordinary luck, a chance, that we ended up in this. It's, it's really begging too many questions. Good question, though. <laughs> yes, Archbishop, I wanted to comment on uh, the current Archbishop's uh, statements uh, regarding uh, Sharia law. Oh, oh, wow. Um, uh, what he said? Uh, with with respect to uh, um, how that could be integrated with with uh, the current system in Great Britain. Now, are you confusing Rowan Williams with Justin? Um, Justin Rowan is Williams. the Rowan Williams. Well, he was the one before last. Um, and yes, I mean, um, dear Rowan was hammered on that. Um, um, I hammered him as well, really. Uh, um, you can't have two laws in one country. You can't have one law for one group of people and another law for other people. Just imagine marriage and that kind of thing. And, and so Rome, Rome, I think what Rome was trying to say, we've got to find a way of respecting Muslim people and um, try to blend together their particular traditions within uh, civil law. 
but he was greatly misunderstood um, by that. Um, and what I think he was trying to argue for, because the Jews have their corpse as well, and in this country I'm pretty sure they, they would, but in no way would their domestic law replace um, civil law. Um, what it is, is and we can understand that if you're in a church situation, then you might have laws and that actually how we organize our life. But you can't really have more than one civic law that applies to us all, and we are all compelled to obey that law. Um, so it's gone quiet on that. I think Ryan realizes that he was saying something that was quite dangerous, even though Muslims in the country actually applauded this and thought this is this is terrific. But it wasn't. It would make a very unhealthy nation if we went in that way. In other words, Muslims in Britain, they're a very loud minority, but there's only about 5% of Muslims in, in the country. And you can't organize your life with a small group of people and have, having a special place. We're all subject to the law. I don't know if that's a reality over here, Stephen, is it at all? It's not. It hasn't come there. It's a small yeah. But thank you for the question. It's a um, yeah, gentleman there. Your, your thoughts on evolution are, are provocative and interesting and wonderful to me. So much of the early in, in, in interpretation of the Bible was based strictly on allegory. And as we progressed to biblical interpretation, we yes. expanded our view of what really did happen. And is this, are your thoughts more or less sort of aligned with this increase in knowledge and biblical interpretation and in how we take the Word of God as presented to us? Well, thank you for that, because that's a very interesting and very helpful thought. There is progressive revelation in the Bible itself. I mean, why do we as Christians now, why, why, why didn't we go out and kill a few Amalekites and so on? We don't, because progressive revelation. In other words, we know there are certain things that happened in the Old Testament time that we look back and say, no, reprehensible. We don't go murdering people because we believe it's the will of God. Christ changes our understanding. It's through the prism and the lens of Jesus. We look at the Old Testament. We interpret it in a fresh way. In Psalm 1 and Psalm, talk about your enemies and taking their children and battering their heads against a stone. Now, of course, you have to interpret that. Uh, culturally belonging to a particular period in history and it's for example this is sometimes where we get our theology wrong South Africa with apartheid it was the Dutch Reformed Church that applied the Old Testament as if it was on an equal basis to the New Testament they, they said they could find verses which would seem to support the idea that black people are different black people are inferior you won't find anything like that in the New Testament, you see. And it's that tragic misinterpretation which has done the church so much damage and slavery and, and so on. There is a progressive revelation, um, but we're now living in the fullness of times. There's no progression beyond that. And so, you see, evolution, for me, evolution as a young man growing up, it made sense. Uh, with the world as I understood it. It's never been a problem to me. 
And the interesting thing that this seems to be a problem in America more than in any other place. You wouldn't find many Christians worrying about this in Britain. Maybe because that's where Darwin <laughs> originated from. But you wouldn't because I think most of us actually say and in fact there was a thing on CNN tonight that found in Oregon um, new species, bisons, mammoths and creatures like that. In other words you've got to take into account that um, uh, the Archbishop, whatever his name, some years ago who thought that the world was created in 404 BC Usher, Archbishop Usher now, he was trying to do that by working it up from the Bible itself. We know that the, the universe started by a point of singularity 15 billion years ago. I was regarded as a creation, God's creation of an amazing universe. And if you've seen Star Trek, the opening scenes of Star Trek would with the um, Enterprise going out into the into the space and see all this space, so many hundreds and millions of galaxies, and God has created life here. And the question story is: there life out there that's intelligent? And the scientists have got to be. It's got to be. But no one has come up with it at all, actually. We'll have to wait and see. I, I believe that life is unique, and uh, especially made in the image of God. So, by the way, I hope I've not distressed anyone with my views. I'm sure I haven't. Looked He's in room 322 at the top, Father. <laughs> uh, all I want to say is that we've got to... Creationism has given Christianity a bad name a very bad name and a lot of thinking people say if you Christians believe that you're so special that God created it in seven days and and evolution is wrong then we're not going to listen to you um, and in, in order to speak to people we've got to give a reason for the hope that's within us it's got to be an intelligent reason we've got to listen to the world around us I am speaking to the converted, I know. So. Archbishop, you, I actually don't struggle with Psalm 1 all that much. Um, you've not met my enemies or their beastly children. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this idea of progressive revelation and understanding the Old Testament in the light of the new, uh, and yet here in our church in the United States, uh, we have a, a doctrine that is almost like uh, the Mormon church, that we've been given uh, new insights into things that uh, contradict both the old and the new. And so where do you draw the line and how do you are articulate uh, a definitive word, a closed canon, uh, rather than a continuing revelation uh, from God concerning uh, matters that are that are explicit in the scriptures? Yes, I know there's um, a great deal of worries about that, particularly in the States, and I'm aware of some churches where that have gone clearly beyond the New Testament. Well, I mean, it's a fact. In these last days, Hebrews 1, God has spoken through his Son. And we've got to hold on to that. There's no reason or evidence to actually deploy an argument for 
a developing view of revelation that goes beyond Christ, that brings in Muhammad and uh, Hindu faiths and so on, which I, I, I understand that in some churches you have that, and in some some uh, liturgies you would have the word of Moses and, uh, and Muhammad and so on. There's no justification for that whatsoever. It is it is maybe someone trying to actually make a name for themselves, maybe, I, I don't know, but no reputable theologian would want to go that way. And if they do, they'd have to leave the Bible behind. Where, I, I don't remember exactly what you said about the fall in the, in the parable of Genesis 1 through 11, but uh, clearly Satan, evil, the devil, uh, is here with us. Oh yes, 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 yes. Spoken yes, yes, yes. Of throughout yes, yes. scripture to the very yes. end. So, yes, yes, yes. And, and the image don't parables speak to a truth to yes. try and clarify a truth that we can't yes. comprehend? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It is parabolic. I mean, for example, the, the the devil is seen in Genesis two as a serpent, as a snake. Now, you see, this this is called etiological. In other words, the writer is actually trying to explain, that's what etiology means, trying to explain how things happened, how was the world created. So it is, it is a parable, parabolic understanding. So you're not lessening the power of evil by saying it's only a picture of the snake because the snake is a sinister kind of creature. So the writer is actually deploying a picture image to say there is evil present in the world. And we've only got, as I was saying, you've only got to look around us to see what a reality that is. In spite of our knowledge, in spite of our education, we still cannot control ourselves. So there's plenty of evidence of the devil's work. Someone mentioned C.S. Lewis um, earlier C.S. Lewis, as a very profound intellectual, once said, I've always tried to go as far as I possibly can in thinking of Satan as a personal evil, and believe me, the Bible encourages to go very close. In other words, he was aware of the presence of evil. We cannot dismiss the personal character of Satan. That's what it's saying. Very interesting. Hmm. Why do we have such difficulty today seeing Satan's role in things like Islam, trying to take people away from Christ? Yes. 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 Because we do not say yes. that. We say there's all. We say all these other things. This is true religion. But it's an attempt to send to take yes. All these people yes. Yeah. Do you know that you've, you've touched on something that often interested me? Is why is Christianity so often under attack? Why does it get up the nose of so many um, people of other faith? And it does so because Christianity stands in the way of domination by a particular faith. Why is 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 so worried about? a few hundred or so Syrian Christians because they hate Christians. We 
we are saying a totally different message about love. We're not using the, the, the language of violence. It's extraordinary, and I think it has to do that these people see in Christianity something that really does um, annoy them very profoundly. They see us as the opposition in spite of numbers. And so that's, that's how they treat America. They see America in this kind of way, and Britain as well. What can we do about it? Well, one of the things we can do about it is to support our brothers and sisters in these places. It really is important. Yeah, um, um, I find all your thoughts interesting, and I would agree with pretty much all of them. I'll you know, say thank God for evolution. Um, I think it's pretty obvious that there's interspecies evolution that we can witness within our own lifetimes. Um, evolution of thought, uh, you know, who knows where we came from, if it was from, I, I don't personally believe we came from some primate or anything, but I would think if we did, that's a beautiful image of, you know how you're talking about when you're in South Africa and you mentioned the word anthropologist and how we, that's how we know who God is, is through, this, through all these anthropomorphic words to learn how God is, Father, Son, even looking back at uh, terms like that, when Father and Son, that would imply that one came before the other, which is not, they're both begotten, you know, begotten, unmade. And it's just words like that that help us, and if we believe that he breathed life into yeah. us, yeah. that's even a picture, a symbolic picture there. Yeah. And just like yeah. you're saying with Genesis, I, I've always, yeah. I completely would agree, and um, I've never heard of it in terms of a parable, but I've always thought Genesis 1 is like a poem, and Genesis 2, it gets more literal. And throughout all these generations, if it went into too much detail, a lot of people wouldn't be able to understand. And it's just a picture. Like you're saying, I like how you use the word likeness after image. We're creating the image, the likeness, because God is not, God the Father is not a physical, at least I don't believe a physical being, yeah, 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 he is yeah. a, uh, and we are not just how we believe, like you're saying with people that believe in this being a deterministic universe, uh, it, it's gotten to the thought of we are bodies with a soul, and it's actually we are souls in a body, and um, so I've liked everything, you know, and you look at Revelation and Genesis, there's so much symbolism there, we're not great, we're not literal Vines, it's it's also symbolic and it helps us to get a full picture and to think that we're all images of Christ walking around in his likeness and to know God is to just look at all these beautiful people all of them together is the only way to see God clearly yeah well there's a lot of um, theological truth in what you said Tommy thank you very much indeed for that and you know, you want to add that word? Yeah, um, I've always wondered this. Um, another picture of symbolism: God is seated at the right hand of the Father. God the Father being Spirit, and Jesus being the incarnation. Will we see God the Father, or we will just see Him through the man, God Jesus? We would only see, yes, I think so um, So central is Christ. 
that that is the that's the transforming centre. That is the way in which we have to do all our interpretation. But the pictures come into it, you see, what you were saying about the son sitting on the right hand of the father. It's an image. You see, it is the way in which, how can God speak to us? He can only speak to us through pictures and words we use. So it's an accommodation to us. So when Stephen, who is the first martyr, sees the, the, the risen Christ, what does he see? We don't really know, but there's an accommodation that God says, the only way I'm going to actually reach you is through pictures you understand. Now, I thought when he was speaking, another thought came to my mind about, I mentioned my friend David Price Williams, an anthropologist. He made a very strong argument, which we know about, is that it's pretty evident that humanity originated from Africa. Now, as a point of singularity, it, it was in Africa. Why? Because most of the nation, most of the, the world is the, the continents were locked together as one. Um, and extraordinary. If you look at the map of the world now, you can see how they fit together. But it was, it came that mankind originated from one couple in Africa. Extraordinary. Although we've actually found other parts, I mean, quite recently in Georgia, Tbilisi, have found um, 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 some skulls which go back to uh, oh, 150,000 years ago, um, but they're all secondary to the African type. So it's extraordinary that you've got that link with Genesis, um, one family. And some people might want to speculate there, you will find the Adam and Eve. We don't know. Well, let's call it Adam and Eve, we don't know, but it has to be one pair. And we've originated from that miracle. I mean, it is a miracle. It really is. Hmm. Could you speak to Enoch? He walked with God and what's no more? And what? Enoch, who walked with God <coughs> in Genesis 5. Uh, that, uh, what, what is that parable speaking to? Um, well, the parable, as, as I understand it, as I interpret it, yes, God speaking with man, but was it a literal God? Um, well, no, I'm talking about Enoch. Oh, Enoch. Enoch. Now, I would say, as I said, I think there's reason to say that Genesis 1 to 11 uh, smacks much more of pictures. Uh, when you get to Genesis 12, um, yes, Abraham comes on the thing. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, some people would say, yeah, that was a real walking with God. I would interpret that spiritually, uh, metaphorically. Yeah. But he didn't die. Well, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know. The Bible says he didn't die. He was um, translated to the Father. I'm not going to argue with it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, before um, Lord and Lady Carrie die of hunger, uh, we're going to translate them to supper, but I'd like to mingle a little bit, ask him any questions. Uh, I'm sure that they would uh, welcome the opportunity. So, uh, Archbishop Carrie, thank you so very much, and we look forward to tomorrow night. Well, thank you. And, um, 
And tomorrow night, I'm going to take a different approach. We're going to come down to Earth. We're going to, or we're going to walk on the Earth and exploit. What are we going to do about this crazy uh, world of ours? Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>